I actually think it's easier in the long run to just decide not to be ashamed of it and just decide that humans are really complicated and they're ugly and they're they're weird and they're they're various and you know what if people can't embrace that too bad right read a different book that is today's guest, author Cree LaFaver. She has written everything from cookbooks to dissertations to a memoir and a novel. This woman knows about human behavior and she knows about vulnerability. These are all things we dive into in this episode and the sparks along her path that have inspired and encouraged the work she's done. Welcome back to the Keep It Quirky podcast. I'm your host, Katie Quinn, and this is the podcast where we talk with creatives and entrepreneurs about food, travel, and the discipline and drive to create. Passion begets passion, so come on with me and let's do this. Creela Favor has the kind of writing career that I love. I admire it, and I just think she's so cool. She's written more cookbooks than you can count on your hand and an acclaimed memoir. And her latest book, a novel called Private Means, is a fascinating and sometimes rather sexy book that is, you know, on the surface about a middle-aged couple that loses their beloved dog and the unraveling that occurs thereafter. But of course, what it's really about is human relationships. It's funny, it's thought-provoking, it's dark and wry. So we talk about that work up front and we talk about her writing process and how writing a novel was different for her than kind of excavating herself to write her memoir called Lights On, Rats Out, which came out a few years ago. So how did she go from authoring and ghostwriting cookbooks to becoming this literary badass? Well, we'll hear all about that. The twists and turns her life has presented, you know, they seem on one hand so varied and yet they weave together so wonderfully. Let's hop into the conversation. Hi, Cree. Hi, Katie. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. And where are you uh, talking to me from? I am speaking from the great state of West Virginia. Um, <laughs> and I'm a little tiny bit envious that you're in London because I love that, that country and that city. And I like being closer to France and all the rest of <laughs> Of, of, all, of all that those good things but um yes I'm I'm in West Virginia home of the pepperoni roll <laughs> that's all that really matters right home of right. the pepperoni roll I was surprised uh, that you are in West Virginia and not New York City which is where you have lived most of your adult life right yeah so I've definitely been in and around New York for oh boy it's all of my marriage, which is an incredibly long marriage, gratefully, 20, 26 <laughs> years or something like that. Yeah. Wow. So, um, yeah. So I've been, I've been sort of in the suburbs. I've been in New Jersey and New York, but it's always been right around. It's been, I consider myself a New Yorker for sure. And we'll be back there. We'll be back. Yeah. And I felt like, so to your book, your newest book out, it's a novel called Private Means. It's excellent. I, I thoroughly enjoyed it and we'll get more into it. But on the New York front, I could, so I lived in New York for, for 10 years myself before moving to London. And so much of the way that you described New York, because your characters live in the city, um, the way you described even like, you know, going down the steps into the subway and like these little things it made me quite nostalgic for New York City, I have to say. 
I'm super happy it had that effect because I, I do, I absolutely love New York, but it's so specific. I feel like getting those details right really matters. And just like the closing the subway doors and what you feel like when you sit down in a subway car. And I miss yes. all of that so much. I was recently back in New York and actually jumped on the subway, which many of my friends hadn't even done who were still living there because they're like, oh my God, I'm not during the virus. And for um, sure, yeah. I, I was so thrilled to be back on the subway. It's just the best. Um, and, and just in general, I'm back in the city. And the city feels like it's in a slightly sad, it's definitely in a kind of sad place right now. But I think the book in some ways can kind of feel like going back to this sort of glorified pre-pandemic sort of existence where we could care about all these, the minutiae of our lives instead of feeling like we're just shallow, hollow, terrible people for even worrying about little things. So... It's the, the novel, I think, kind of enters the world at an odd time, you know? Absolutely. And all of the scenes in which there are people gathered, whether it's like the lost dog folks gathering together or groups of friends gathering at a beach home, it's like, oh yeah, remember when we did that? I know. I really feel that every time I, even watching TV, you know, watching a movie or something, you're like, wait, they're all in a room together. Oh my God. Um, yeah, no, it's, it's, man, this is a really, this is definitely a strange transformation we're going through. And I, for myself, I don't want to read about pandemics. Like I'm actually, as, as anyone can, um, attest to, um, knows me pretty well. I, I, been was very prepared for this thing coming it didn't really change anything of course but so i'm not super surprised by the pandemic but i am but all of a sudden now i don't want to read about any of it i you know what i mean like i don't want to read i don't want to read pandemic fiction or books that are uh, uh, you know about i don't want to reread outbreak or you know right i i want to go back and read about the pre-pandemic world so anyway yeah, no, I, I I understand that. And I have to say that Private Means did that for me. I, I thought it was a wonderful escapist novel beyond the the pandemic. It might sound belittling to call it a great beach read, but I re- literally read it on the beach. So, I'm so glad. I, so I can say that it was for me, although it is, there's so much more depth and it's really smart. It's a really, it is a really smart book. No, no, no. You've made me very happy by saying you read it on the beach because when I came out with my memoir, Lights On, Rats Out, it was a, it's a really tough read and it's the kind of thing you read like on a dark night in December, <laughs> you know, under the covers and then, you know, you're so, you're, it's so heavy. Um, I wanted to read, I wanted to write a book that people would just be like, I'm taking this to the beach. I'm going to enjoy reading it. And it's meant to be kind of wicked and fun and all the ways that I hope it is in, or, or in some of the ways it is. Um, because I just, I had fun writing that book oh. and I want my readers to have a fun, have fun reading it. You know, it's just, I hope that transfers. Yes, it did to me. And I'm curious about, so you, you had so much fun writing it, um, with, with your memoir, um, Lights on Rats Out, which you just mentioned, you have said that it came to you or you wrote it in a white heat was like, and that it just, it just spilled out of you in this like incredibly intense, rapid pace. Was private means anything like that? Or was it a little more you know, it's casual. It was definitely very casual in the sense that I, but I also had a kind of vision for it and wrote it pretty quickly once I 
knew what I was up to. Huh, so it took okay. a bit of time to get sort of the feel for where I was taking it. But once I grabbed hold of my characters and had figured out who I was, who I had to deal with, Peter and Alice, the two main characters, then I, it kind of took off, but it wasn't a white heat. It was like, I wrote every morning very contentedly. And then I would go about my day. And it was like, I felt like I had sort of accomplished something during the day so I could go grocery shopping and make a fancy dinner and, you know, do whatever. Um, so, and I also wrote it over the summer. So um. in some respects, there were, there were elements of like sort of travel. As you know, the characters go and visit their sometimes wealthy, sometimes not so wealthy friends up in different parts of New York, outside New York City, which is kind of a thing that New Yorkers do of, of, of a, at a certain level. And, you know, it's just, you, if you're, if you're lucky enough to get an invite, you go. (laughs) Who wants to be in the depths of New York City, like in August when it's steaming? (sighs) Smells like trash. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. It smells like trash. The subway smells like urine. You're just like, oh, May I get out of here? So anyway, so they do a lot of that. And it's kind of the structure of the novel is, you know, getting out of the city, different chapters are like Cape Cod and they go see his parents in Vermont and they go to the Berkshires twice and they go to the Hamptons. And so anyway, I, I didn't do all of those things necessarily. And I certainly didn't do them in the way that they're represented in the novel, but I have been to those places and I do draw on those experiences. I did draw on them. So I might be in the morning writing and being like, Oh, huh. Add a little detail about this place or that. Yeah. That's so interesting though. I love how most of the, the initial work happened in your head, like the baking of the, the characters and like kind of those, it sounds like the important plot twists, which I, I won't mention here because I don't want to give anything away. Um, but it sounds like that was kind of pre-baked in your head and then you just set to work getting it, getting it down. Yeah. I don't know. I think that it kind of emerged a little bit through a process of trial and error writing. So I think I, I, I think most clearly when I write, I would say, so hmm. I think all over the place, but when it comes right down to really getting an argument straight, um, you know, I'm, uh, you know, I'm a lapsed academic. So I think that, you know, building those academic arguments with all your, you know, your, your endless quotations from Henry James, you know, like, okay, I've got to build this. I need this to, to shore up that point. So I yeah. think I sort of work that way on the sure. page. But once I sort of had the framework, like I had the couple, I had the question of whether Alice, the main character, really wants to stay in her marriage because she's sort of at a point where she's she's not super in love with her husband. I mean, they're together in the way that couples who have been together for a really long time can be together, which is that they love each other in this sort of bland way. They're right, second- you kind of just did air quotes when you I did you air that. quotes. Yeah. That's really help on a podcast. Um, but anyway, <laughs> so, um, but you know, they have a life together and the infrastructure of our lives are incredibly important. You know, I have two kids. I have, you know, people have mortgages, they have kids, they have, you know, all these complicated friendship relationships that keep couples together. And I think many times for the better. I mean, I'm not going to give the book away, but you know, they're the both of them are struggling with being monogamous in this situation. The main characters, Alice and Peter, they're they're not they're not my peers. <laughs> right. 
They're older but, than you are. But They're yeah, older. but nonetheless, I was sucked in just as much and I cared I just as much about their relationship and almost, you know, felt felt some of those things and, you know, like put the phone down and, you know, just like things that I think anyone in any kind of a relationship, even a friendship or whatever can, yeah. can just relate to those feelings. I'm glad. I mean, it, it, I think that a lot of, I mean, or I hope that some of the things that we're talking about here in terms of being in a long-term relationship or just, you know, as you say, a very intense friendship. I mean, one sense of privacy. Once, I mean, the, it's in the mm. title, Private Means, which has a lot of valence. It's got a lot of different meanings in the book. Privacy is something we negotiate in our relationships, I think. And autonomy and that sense of losing oneself in a relationship can be really terrifying. These things don't you know, they go on and on and on. We could be, I, it could be about 80 year olds. It could be about 25 year olds. It could be about 40, 50 year olds. You know, it's, it, it's sort of, it, it, you know, put it, put the damn phone down, right? Do you have your book near you? Yeah, I do which have it. Mind reading a passage. Um, and let's see, I was looking at a couple and let's see which one. Flipping to page 138. I would. It's like ooh. surprise. Let's see what we're going to read there. <laughs> yeah, okay. Just talking about the phones and stuff. Reminds me of a passage from the book when Alice and Peter are out at a restaurant and they're having a tiff. Escalate, escalate. Escalate, escalate. And then they're interrupted by the waitress. So why don't you start from there? The arrival of the waitress and the pig's ears called a truce. Peter ordered a second beer and Alice switched to a cruel as a cucumber. It was, Alice reflected, almost identical to the Mrs. Dalloway with the, its gin, cucumber, and lime. The difference was the comment dals us. She wished she were waiting for food with George, though the idea of the excitement was vaguely overwhelming. The two of them sat blankly for some time, attempting to de-escalate by making occasional unsuccessful forays into conversation involving Bet and Emile or their upcoming trip to Vermont. When the rest of the food arrived, it gave them additional relief. It was less awkward to eat without conversation, and their comments on the qualities of each dish made it seem almost friendly. Thank God, thought Alice, for food talk, the last refuge of the conversationally impaired. I love that sentence that it ends with. Th- thank you for reading that. The reason, the reason that I wanted you to read that passage in particular is because of the way that you, and we can get more into your cookbooks and your food writing um, later, and I would love to, but I see the ways in which it is woven in so much of your novel, um, the little ways that you describe, like, you know, Alice will be at home with a glass of wine or something, and just the ways that you describe food and like the domestic arena of food and how food plays in life very reminiscent to me of mfk fisher which is a way of saying that i love it and i think that you intertwine food and drink and this kind of stuff in life in like a very um poignant way thanks katie it's funny i you know during over the course of doing interviews about this book i you know i've come to realize just how much food and wine is in this book wait so, so you didn't realize it before i even. didn't really realize it like <laughs> Interesting. It's so integral to the way i operate and the way i look at the world what i 
But what that comment saying is, I am so tired of like our food culture that's obsessive and precious. And there's this scene in Vermont at that farm that's like really, really pretty. I, I would say it's the most sort of snarky food food moment in the book. Um, I know the one you're talking about. The menu is like everything is heritage, heirloom, you know, there's like a brambleberry cobbler or something. I mean, and he's sort of like brambleberry, like, come on, that's not a berry. That's not a thing. It just doesn't exist. Um, So the cuteness and the coyness and the sort of advertising, labeling and fetishizing of food that I think we do now is just, I'm I'm exhausted by it. I don't watch food TV and I'm sure I miss out on some great stuff by not doing that. And I probably should like grow up and watch the good stuff that's out there. Um, But yeah, I'm really, I, I, it's difficult because I'm, I'm from the position that I grew up with food as a really, my father's was a chef from, you know, we had a restaurant in Aspen in the 1960s. And I grew up just like really lucky, really privileged to be able to be exposed to food at a very early age and at an early stage in its revolution. So, I mean, not food's revolution, obviously, but of sort of American cuisine or American cooking or, you know, the food revolution as we know it. That's why I think it gets integrated in the way that it does kind of. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's funny that I'm getting vibes from you that you think of yourself as like a recovering food writer because you're like, I sort of washing your hands clean. I mean, I've written a ton of cookbooks. I mean, a ton by my standard. I mean, I have let's see. Yeah, I have four of my own, and then I, you know, co-wrote the Chelsea Market book with Michael Phillips, and then I helped some other people ghostwrite their books. So I'm, I'm definitely. I reached the point, and as you know, as someone who's written a cookbook before and has another one coming out, the recipe testing is pretty grueling. Mm-hmm. I think that I did a bunch of books in a row and I got really, really burned out on that process to some extent. Um, it's exhausting if you do it yourself, but I am a little tired of it. Although I never wrote a baking book and baking is my real love too. Oh, what? Okay. Yeah. I think that this is all going to come around, Cree. I, I hope so. Let's hope so, I, okay. I wonder, I wonder. <laughs> I, just while we are on the topic, I, I would really love to just read this one sentence because I love it so much. I have it like underlined and starred. Um, yes, Spoiling an evening was as effortless as downing a bad oyster. <laughs> so there, I you know, appreciate that. <laughs> because I'm like, oh my God, it is. It can just happen like that. Yes, right down the hatch. And then you're like, wow, that didn't tie. That, did, that wasn't quite right. <gasps> that wasn't quite right. Right. Let's talk about all of the, the food writing that you have done, which is, um, so you did a, a I think your first one that you authored was called The New Steak. Yep. And then um, then you kind of went on this whole like single subject um, thing. You did fish, pork, and poulet, which of course chicken. Um, did you have a favorite of, of those experiences? So, you know, it's funny. I developed that way of doing sort of all my cookbooks have a main and then they, the sides that go with them. So they've got sort of a a, 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 a tick or a, or a sort of um, particular style. And it developed because I sold the um, steak cookbook. I wanted to sell it as Chasing Skirt, 
because I was eating a ton of skirt steak. Now, would that have been the best title? Yes. Um, <laughs> unfortunately, they didn't go for it. Um, oh, they're bad. Yeah, that, they missed out. They missed, they out. missed out. That would have been way cooler. Um, but anyway, so... And then, so I sold that book and I set out to write the recipes and I wanted to, I was writing a book about like sort of not just porterhouses and strip steaks. I wanted to introduce readers to skirt steak at the time because, which is now incredibly expensive and everyone knows about it, but this was probably 15 years ago. So skirt steak was like three bucks a package. Like it was nothing. You could buy it super cheap. (laughs) I realized that I had to make sauces. I mean, I could make sauces, but is that a recipe? Just a sauce? So like once you introduce someone how to cook the steak. So then I thought, well, what do I, and I, this is how I think about food too. I think about it in terms of a whole plate, like, right. Mm. We all do. I mean, it's like, you know, I want a particular kind of side and and I want something crunchy or crispy and I want something softer and richer over here to go with this. So it contrasts. So, so that's how that developed. Um, I would say, I mean, I was a James Beard finalist for Fish, which is crazy. I know. Congratulations. Which is crazy because that's not my favorite book. But I am bringing it to Provincetown. We're about to move to Provincetown. So I'm I'm bringing Fish, and I'm going to recook my way through it just out of curiosity because it's been a while since I wrote that book. I guess that'll kind of put the uh, recipe testing that you had done years prior to the test a bit. <laughs> yes, it will. Yes, it will. I will I will have to see. I mean, I am a huge chicken fan, so I probably, um, like, poulet. Poulet is funny because it doesn't have any breasts. There's not a single breast recipe in that book because I don't believe in chicken breasts. Like, I don't, I'm a dark meat person. Yep, right? Amazing. So there's tons of whole birds and there's thighs and there's some wings, but there's no, um, there's no, I think it's probably the only chicken cookbook without a single breast recipe. I probably, yeah. So, <laughs> but that's um, great. people can go to, you know, Martha Stewart for those. And exactly. Yeah. Anyone who wants a boneless breast can go right to Martha Stewart as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So let's, so you mentioned that you're kind of, entry into the cookbook world was kind of like you stumbled into it in a way because your father was um, it, it, a figure in the scene kind of as like new American cuisine was really kicking off. Um, can you tell me a bit more about your dad? And so it, he had this restaurant in Aspen, Colorado, but then you guys moved to Idaho when you were nine. Yeah. So, so let's see the way my, my, my father did his, his sort of service, which all that generation had to do in as a counterintelligence plainclothes officer in France. So um, he'd been to France That's before. so cool. I know, right? So he lived in an apartment and, and taught himself to eat and cook in, in some ways. So he didn't entirely teach himself how to cook, I would say, but he, he ate and he loved the food and the country. Um, he came back to the States, moved out West because he was from the East coast, um, met my mom and they started a re- the restaurant, the Paragon, which it was a really unusual restaurant in Aspen during the 1960s. Um, and then that was really a, a, a successful play, place. It just got, Aspen got really crazy and my parents decided that they wanted to move to Idaho. So we bought a guest ranch and he ran that as a sort of in, um, 
people would come and he would cook these incredible meals in the middle of like in central Idaho. It was actually, to be fair, it's about an hour and 20 minutes from Sun Valley. So people would go, people who cared about food might be there and then they would come over and they would stay the night. And, and then my dad moved to California and started a restaurant there, Rosen LeFevre, which he did with a partner after my parents divorced. So he, my dad was really early on. We had chickens and ducks and pigs and the whole, the whole menagerie, including a huge garden. We did our own milk and cream and eggs and made butter, all of that stuff back in the seventies. It sounds so idyllic. It was pretty, it was pretty unusual um, for the time. Like it was really, really early on the sort of, you know, I mean, it's too late for the sort of back to the land thing. And it's sort of farm to table before that was even a phrase by far. So, you know, I, my dad was a real, really early on in this, in, in the food movement, I would say. Um, and I just grew up in that atmosphere. It was just like the soup that I swam in. So and my parents traveled a lot and I was really lucky to travel to some degree with them. And so I was sort of steeped in, in food and wine. And, you know, I, I wrote the cookbook because I was raising kids. I had tried to run a bakery that didn't really work. And I was like, I didn't have a storefront. I was trying to do it at the farmer's market. Oh, cool. um, and, um, you know, I had two little kids at home and I was like in my twenties or no, I was in my early thirties trying to figure out what the hell I was doing with my life. I had a PhD, but I, my husband had a job in New York city. I couldn't exactly move to Duluth to get a tenure track job. So I just, you know, it was like, Oh, I'm going to try this. So this is okay. Like this is why I have been so excited to talk to you because I feel like you you are like a cat with nine lives, but like they are all (laughs) intertwined. Just like I was saying how like in your novel, I, to me, like the, your food writing past jumped out at me. Um, and then also lights on rats out something as, um, kind of like obvious as like, Oh, Peter is a psychiatrist and your psychiatrist in your memoir, like it plays a very, very big role. Right. So I think like, you know, and just seeing all of the, like the many lives of Cree LaFever, like really oh, intertwined. You're very nice. Um, no, you're totally right. I mean, this novel is in some ways kind of like me having fun on the other side of the couch, like being in the <laughs> Yes. So it's me pretending to be in the analyst chair and sort of imagining what it might've been like for a psychiatrist to be lusting after a young patient. Now, I am not saying at all that my psychiatrist lusted after me. I wish he had. Yeah. If you read my memoir, you will know that I wish he had. But, um, and I don't think he did. Um, but it's complicated, right? Uh, transference and countertransference are super complicated. Therapies really, you know, um, over the course of three years for a young person, I was in my 20s when I was in therapy, Um, and you know, I had more fun than I can tell you imagining what it would be like to be sitting over in that chair, like checking out my patient. Um, so I just, that's what I mean when I said I had fun with this. I love writing about therapy because I find it just like a distillation of life. Like it's an intense moment when we're, we're honest, we're straightforward. Everything said, everything said is allowed to be unpacked in a way that sort of academics do. Um, and so I love speech in that context. And I just, 
anyway, I'm, I'm a huge therapy fan. So I'm wondering because your memoir was obviously a true truthful storytelling of your own life. And I, I can only imagine really the vulnerability that that took. And so writing the novel and being able to kind of like, like you said, you could switch roles and you could now be the psychiatrist. And like, I see the fun element of that. Was there also a freeing element in that you weren't writing about yourself and that that, that vulnerability was kind of, you know, there, I'm sure in a different way, but gone. Absolutely. It was so much, it was so much fun. I mean, writing my memoir was hard. It was hard work. Once you, once you've written a book like, like it's on rats out, which exposes all this personal material, sexual, you know, ugliness about oneself, terrible self-destructive impulses, just the works. You realize like no one really cares. And actually Mm -hmm. it's very liberating. I mean, oh wow. It's really strange. It's a strange feeling. Like all of a sudden I had I had walked around for um, you know, 20, 20 years, a little more than 20 years with scars on my arm that from from my cigarette putting out there. Um, and you know, most people don't ask what they are, and occasionally people would, and I'd be like, oh, it's a long story. So all of a sudden I write a book that just blows the lid off the thing. And here's my long story. <laughs> here's my long story. You were waiting for it. Um, so it's, it, it actually was so liberating to, to no longer have that part of my life in a compartment, like mm. in a locked box that I couldn't open. I mean, literally, I had my um, psychiatric file that I actually used in that book to sort of understand what went on during therapy because it was 20 years ago and you know I had there was a fair amount of stuff that I misremembered or remembered differently or and I had you know his extensive notes from every single session to go through um so for me it was just like it was really just like opening the box letting it all out and letting it just that box remain open Hmm. and, and so this is where like the title comes from, right? It's like the idea that you need to get the demons out. No, exactly. I mean, <laughs> no, box. you turn the lights on and the rats scatter, right? So if you leave the lights on, like expose things to the daylight, mm. which is in some ways what therapy does, right? Like where you're sort of like shedding light or allowing secrets to come out in the, in a process. And then just, you know, sort of understanding them, grasping them and the, the dark nasty elements kind of get the hell out when, when you do that. Right. To some extent. I mean, that's an idealized version, but. And so this book came out in 2017, right? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Now, three years later, what's the feeling? The feeling isn't of fear or trepidation. Like I literally just packed up that file um, because it was sitting around in my office somewhere. It buried under a bunch of other stuff because it's not something I need to look at it now or feel really anxious about. So now it's just, it's just paper. I mean, Hmm. it's not just paper. It's still important paper, I guess. But in some ways, like, you know, I'm really... I'm just glad I did it. Like, I'm glad it's behind me. I'm glad it's done. Um, And, you know, I guess, I think for, I think for young writers, I've had some questions from sort of young writers before doing interviews where, you know, it's like, how do you get past like being embarrassed by what you're going to write about or, you know, 
you know, if you cannot worry about it, I think you just have to be brave and, 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 and discover mm. what happens because it's actually really interesting because if you're embarrassed by it or ashamed of it, that's not a good thing to carry around. So just, you know, I think it's easier to, I, I actually think it's easier in the long run to just decide not to be ashamed of it and just decide that humans are really complicated and they're ugly and they're, they're weird and they're, they're various. And you know what, if people can't embrace that too bad, right? Read a different book. Yeah. Human. <laughs> I, I love that. I'm curious if anyone has, um, after reading your memoir, given you the feedback, like, thank you because I have struggled with this or, you know, but they, you know, are not as far along in their recovery as, as you, know, you. I've had some of that. Um, I would say I've had more people who, I mean, I've certainly had some of that where people were like, I, I really appreciated your book because it went to these really dark places that I've been before. And it helped me to see the way that you came through this. And, and I've had some psychiatrists say, you know, that, um, that it represents the complexities, the deeper complexities of the therapeutic process in a way that is kind of unusual because it just really goes through each, like the whole sort of trajectory, the whole arc of it. Um, But I think the thing I've probably gotten more of is people who haven't really suffered from mental illness being able to understand say a sibling or a friend who has been very depressed or self-destructive or self-harming mm-hmm. and not those people have not been able to understand how someone could do that and so reading my book for those people was really a revelation like wow. it, it, they finally got it how someone could say cut themselves because for a lot of people that's just it's so alien and it is truly alien. It's a very alien behavior. Like it's as humans go, why it goes against all our sort of evolutionary survivalist, you know, like self-preservation to have, and to have, you know, it's, it's, you know, I think it's devastating for people to observe or watch or have someone in their life behaving that way. Mm -hmm. So I think for those people, it was help. it, it, It maybe has been somewhat helpful. This this question applies to your memoir and your novel, although I thought of it first, like, as soon as I finished your novel, I was like, I can see this as a movie, like, mm. easily. Um, have you, could you, can you see it as a movie? <laughs> I totally can, because I think that, I think it'd be really a fun movie, and part of the reason that I think it would, you'd have to have really dynamic leads, right? So you need to have that that kind of love-loathing that's going on between Peter and Alice. Like, they really do love each other, but they fucking hate each other too, right? They're so mad at each other for all their own disappointments, all their own failures. What happens in a marriage, even after three years or five years or 10 years, like what we do to each other in relationships, you end up kind of mad at the other person sometimes. Um, so I could see that. And then there's Maybell. We haven't talked about Maybell, the dog who gets lost in the novel. And I'm not going to No, stop. and like so much of the plot like is around this dog. Right. So, I mean, 
I, I was inspired by Ian McEwen and the way that he has an amazing ability. And I do not compare myself to Ian McEwen. He is one of the greatest. Although um, Elizabeth Gilbert, the writer, did compare you to Ian McEwen yes, on well, the cover of your book. Yeah. Very kind of her. <laughs> so the, um, yeah, it's a fitting comparison, but yeah, go on. Anyway, I mean, I just think he has a talent. He has a talent and that's where I kind of got the idea to do this from is of just taking one little element to sort of spin its way through a novel that is really just about human relationships. So in other words, and it sets things in motion in a McEwen novel. So in a way, and it puts, pushes things to a, a point of tragedy or drama or friction in a way that they wouldn't normally be. So this little, this little moment, whether it's like witnessing a, the tragic fall from the, you know, the balloon or, or mm. some violent little car crash or just whatever it is, just pushes daily life into this moment that just all of a sudden things start to unravel a little bit. And so that's what I'm hoping that make the loss of the dog, Maybell, did, does for my book because they're just living their lives and they've been doing it for a long time and things are pretty stable and they're nice people. But all of a sudden this tragic thing happens and everything starts to kind of go awry. Yes. I just love having happen because it does, and it also does happen to people's lives, you know? Mm-hmm. One little thing, it's like, all of a sudden, everything starts looking really stark. So Yes. Well, you somehow made the unraveling fun to partake in. Which, like, That's good. That was my goal. That was my goal. <laughs> okay. I, I don't want to leave this conversation with you without just acknowledging the fact that like you have an American studies PhD. Like, like again, this is going back to the many lives of cream of paper. So tell me, is there anything to say about that academia aspect of your life now? You know, I don't know, Katie. Like I, I loved, I'm just, I grew up without a TV because we were in Idaho and Aspen, Colorado, right? So I read my way through my teenage years um, and my young childhood. My dad was a big reader and I really, I rated his bookshelf from a really early age. So reading and also during my twenties and reading kind of saved, has saved me. Like I was a very, I, I was very isolated during my years in therapy that I write about in my memoir. And I really just read, 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 read. Um, so I, going to grad school felt like the only thing that I could imagine doing. <laughs> so I went ahead and applied to PhD programs. I ended up at NYU and I actually ended up at NYU at a moment when it was like becoming American studies, like hip hop and, you know, food studies and all this other stuff. Yeah. Not the traditional marriage, which is the sort of the Yale version of the marriage of history and literature, which is what I was kind of signing up for. So I ended up doing a very 19, I did 19th century readership in actually Americans reading British novels in the United States because of copyright law. So I did a copyright thing about 19th century literature and readership in the United States. So, you know, to this day, I'm a huge 19th century lit fan. I read, I read a lot of old books. I reread a lot of stuff. 
Um, it's very much with me. I, I, I guess I have a certain confidence about maybe researching and I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I wouldn't hesitate to take on maybe a biography or something like that. I wouldn't, mm, like, cool. I guess because I feel like I have the sort of skills. Like if I came away from with anything other than a big loan from Sally Mae, <laughs> Probably this some research skills and the ability to kind of build an argument through texts. Yeah, and that is a skill for sure. The, right. The, well, you know that as a journalist, so yeah, yeah. Um, were you a mother by the time you went to school, or not yet? I was a mother when I was. I was pregnant, like doing my student teaching. I was. I had two tiny babies when I was writing my dissertation. So. Wow. Okay. So there was a little overlap. There was there. a little overlap there, which was complicated. Which you know, again, like it, it was probably good for me. I had to get. I got up at four in the morning to write my dissertation before they got up. You know. Oh my gosh. So I don't know. Things are good for us, right? Thank God I don't have to do it today. <laughs> Oh, um, do you have anything to share on um, ghostwriting? And what is ghostwriting like compared to having your name on, on the cover of the book? Yeah, you know, ghostwriting, I, I have, um, I mean, my, my experience with that has so far has been that I've learned a lot. So in other words, kind of just in the experience, the one experience I had, and I don't want to name names, um, I I mostly was rereading really um, prose that I needed to, to sort of work out. So I had to sort of rewrite it, but try to keep its tone and keep its spirit. Um, but in that case, the, the chef was just incredible. So in other words, doing that, I learned a lot and I learned a lot from the recipes and the way that they were written and, and the anecdotes. So it was, it was a really fun experience. Um, I think it could be, I think it's just all about the pairing. I mean, I just think there's gotta be a huge level of trust and respect between the two parties. Um, you know, not everyone has the time or whatever to, to, to do a cookbook, um, people who, so, I mean, I don't think it's a bad model and I would do it again if I really love the, love the person, you know, just, I, I, I don't, so, so I guess that's my sort of take on it. I see again, a similarity between what you're just describing of your experiences of ghostwriting and your, your PhD and the, your studies, right? It's just like, right. You, you learn and you condense and <laughs> right. put it no, into the right. world. I mean, to me, I'm willing to do most things if I feel like I'm learning something I'm, that I value, right? So if even if I'm, I mean, if I can afford to and not be paid, I'm willing to take on, like I, I did this broth project. I did this rocket, it was called rocket broth. So we were trying to make broth and I was the, I was the recipe master. And we were making broth and freezing it and shipping it all over the country. And this lasted like two years and I made no money and then it went belly up, but I was not unhappy because in fact, I learned so much and I had fun doing it. Like I loved the people I was working with and no regrets, but I, I, you know, eyes open. Right. I mean, I, if, if I, if I had left that experience, um, you know, not having learned anything, then that would be, that would have been a real waste of my time. So I guess there's, there's always that, the, the continuous learning curve that I'm always happy, happy to bring to my life. I love that. How do you keep it quirky for you a favor? 
I don't even have to try. <laughs> I just, I think I'm inherently quirky, whatever that means in your mind. I'm going to let you go with that. Uh, I think I'm just a, a, a naturally weird person, maybe. So that's just, it's easy. That's my favorite kind of person. Okay, great. Well, so then it was, you were meant to, you were meant to come on the podcast. Um, okay, perfect. <laughs> does, does your quirkiness uh, come out in any specific way? Like, are there any particular quirky anecdotes or things that you do that, that you can think of to share? Well, I'm just trying to think like how I can narrow it down here. Um, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, I mean, quirky, quirky is, um, it's an interesting word, Katie. Like, I'm wondering how you define it. I mean, I was sort of joking, like I am quirky. Well, I actually don't, I'm, I'm probably not any more quirky than any, anyone else in the world, right? We're all, we're all quirky. We're all such individuals. Yeah. Do I have big opinions about which coffee cup I drink out of or whether you're allowed to serve Mexican food and then eat a roast chicken or that doesn't have, you know, Latin spices on it? Do I, I don't know, do I have like favorite sweaters that have so many holes in them? They're more Swiss cheese than, than sweater? that I still wear in public? I don't know. Why don't you keep going? I mean, th these are all such amazing and varied, excellent examples of quirkiness. Um, and I think that you also hit the nail on the head with the beauty of keeping it quirky because we all are inherently quirky yeah. and and we just gotta we just gotta accept it and embrace it right <laughs> i agree i mean that's the thing like don't fight it right if you're weird just be weird yes uh, i think that that's the best way to end Crete, thank you so much for coming on the podcast thank you for having me katie it was a lot of fun Food writer turned novelist Cree LeFevre, thank you so much. I had such a blast talking with you. And you know, I want to know, will there be a baking book in her future or a biography? I really, I can't wait to see what she does next. And to find out, you all can follow her on Instagram at Cree LeFevre. That is C-R-E-E-L-E-F-A-V-O-U-R. You all know where to follow me on Instagram. That's at QKatie. And the podcast's handle is Keep It Quirky Podcast. While we're talking about Instagram handles, y'all should follow at BQ Funk. He is the musician who wrote and performed the podcast theme song you're listening to right now. Also, everyone, I've got some really exciting news. Later this month, I will be revealing the cover art for my book. Yes, the very book that I have talked about on and off for the last year and a half. It is becoming real. So subscribe to my monthly QKD newsletter. The link to do so is in the description of this podcast episode, and you will be the first to see this beautiful book. I'm so stoked about it. Um, and then you'll be able to pre-order it too. So all the good things, they all just come at once. Thank you for listening. Rate review if you love it. You know I love you. Okay, I will see you back here real soon. Bye.